This is the Capness HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Capness. Hello, and welcome to the Capness HR Podcast. I'm your guest, Jason Capness. Our guest today is Kina McAllister. Kina, are you ready to be great today? I am. Thank you, Kina. Kina is a CEO and founder of Stembox. Stembox is a monthly su- subscription box that makes STEM fun for and accessible to girls ages 7 or 13. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. Kina founded Stembox after working as a researcher at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. She has a passion for contributing to current fields of scientific research and empowering young girls to explore STEM. She wants to make science accessible to the public by breaking down stereotypes and involving underrepresented groups of science. Kina, that's a very big undertaking you're taking on right now. Can you talk a little bit about how you're taking this on? Definitely, and it is a big undertaking, and I'm glad that you pointed that out. So I started Stembox back in 2014, the idea of it, when I had just got out of college and I was working at a research lab, like you mentioned, at Red Hutch Cancer Research Center, and I was studying gene therapies for HIV. And prior to this event, prior to working in the lab, in college, I was pursuing a bachelor's of science in general science with a focus in chemistry and biology. And I ended up having a couple of moments with overt or, you know, not so overt sexism. And when I went on to my job, I was aware that that was a possibility. And so I try to explain it as staying vigilant, not paranoia. So what I did to make sure that I knew what possibilities were, what kind of workplace I was going into for my first job is I basically interviewed all the women who were around me. And I just asked them what their experience was, if they'd ever been treated differently, or if they came into any roadblocks. And every single woman had a story, whether it was something like literally being paid 10% less than her male counterpart for the same job, or fighting for first author on a paper that she wrote and commanded. Or when this one's kind of a crazy one, they were giving a talk about their research at a meeting and afterwards people came up to her and didn't talk about her content. They talked about your bangs were distracting, your nails were, you know, long and in the way. And that's super inappropriate and just mitigates all the hard work those women are doing. So I went then to the men and I just didn't tell them what the women said, but I just asked, do you think women in this workplace are treated any differently or have you noticed anything or have they said anything? And every guy was like, no, things are fine. (laughs) And it was such a disconnect that men and women just had such different experiences in the lab space. And that doesn't just go for science. That's obviously in every, basically every work field you look at. So being like in my first job, and experiencing these things and, you know, having my own experiences and comparing that to other women, it brings you out of this little hole where you feel like I'm the only person this is happening to and I'm being too sensitive about it because you're just one data point. As a scientist, that's not enough. So the more I started to hear about other women and their stories, the more I realized this is a trend and this is something that can actually be approached in a public way. So I then gave a talk experience a talk about basically this entire experience I told you at Seattle's town hall for ignite those five minute talks that just tell a story 
And afterwards, I got such validation from people in the audience and women and men came up to me and said, my wife or this has happened to me. And I realized I wanted to do something very tangible after this talk. I didn't want it to just be words. So I went home and I started looking into, you know, what would make girls at a young age where we can get them involved early, where they develop their real passion and personality. How can we get them involved in this? So I decided to do a subscription box because I thought of all the different things in STEM that girls don't know exist. And if we could deliver that on a monthly basis in a really fun and exciting way, maybe we'll be getting some more girls into STEM in ways they hadn't anticipated. So the subscription box model was born. And I actually started compiling experiment parts for boxes in my apartment. And a year later in 2015, I decided to run a workshop with them. The problem was that I was 23 at the time and I didn't know any seven year olds or 12 year olds because none of my friends are having kids at that age. And Seattle's kind of like, like not very kid friendly town necessarily. Um, so what I did do though, to find my demographic is I'd go stand in the whole foods where the Amazon workers go after, after work. And I just kind of troll like the, the aisle with the chips in it and be like, Hey, like, do you have kids? Cause do you guys do look like you have kids? And they'd be like, yeah or no. And then, um, the, the conversation would continue from there. And I'd try to ask questions that weren't too leading, but that would, you know, answer whether or not this is a viable product. And after I figured out if it was, and those people were interested, we exchanged emails and some of those people became my first customers. So Beyond that, too, I would also drive around Seattle and put up flyers for my first workshop in every coffee shop I could pass in like a certain hour or time frame. So that's a lot of coffee shops. If you're familiar with Seattle, there's a lot of work to do there. <laughs> so anyways, the first workshop comes around. It goes live on sale. And then there's like two or three days with no activity. And then on the third or fourth day, they all sold out in like two hours. And I was like, what is going on? And I realized after the workshop that a parent from Microsoft had seen our event and put it on their listserv. So the parents of Microsoft got it. 20 girls showed up. We did DNA extraction from strawberries. They learned a ton. They went home and they taught it to their family. They taught it to their friends. And the parents were asking, when's the next one of these? Because it's really inspired my daughter. So we tested a second box. We did owl pellet dissection, same thing. And they were asking for another workshop. And so I'm at this point where I'm like, you know, I feel like this is something that has my foundation. People have consistently paid for this in small amounts. So, but I think more girls really could be exposed to this and really benefit from it. So I decided to do a Kickstarter and that launched in July of 2015 and it ran until August 2015. And that was a wild ride. There was so much prep work to do, but I actually only took off a week from work the day we launched it. So I did all the prep work whenever I had time and after work on weekends. But the actual week we started, I made myself completely available. And it was probably a very good idea because I didn't want to mess up my work with, you know, gene therapy research for HIV and then also trying to answer questions and emails about this great new product trying to launch. So in the course of this Kickstarter, some amazing things happened. MTV News picked it up and I thought they were I thought it was a joke, <laughs> but it was actually real. I thought I was being punched by my friends. And then they ran the story, and then that story got picked up by Melinda Gates and Bill Gates, and they tweeted about it. Melinda did. And so 
after she tweeted about it, ended up on Upworthy, which is the viral aggregator you see on Facebook. And we ended our campaign. We hit our goal early. We passed 15000 and we ended up at $23,000. So at the end of everything, we had to go from having a, enough money to launch the product six months out to when we actually promised to ship it in January. And in that time, we managed to set up a partnership with Clorox. They sponsored our March box. We ended up getting another review from Melinda. She put out a gift guide that was three gifts and that we were one of the three, which was insane. And then we went to launch and in January 2016, we started shipping and we'd been, we shipped about 750 paid boxes, some from the Kickstarter, some from regular sales. And we've been shipping about 500, 600 a month since, depending on which month it is. And just really learning at this point what our customers need, how we grow, and what are the next steps for Sandbox. So yeah, that's kind of the long version of the story. <laughs> Kina, that's a great story. So is it safe to say that this has become your life's passion right now? Oh yeah, this is all I do. I quit my job in October of 2015 after we signed our deal with Clorox. So Stembox is it nationwide, worldwide? What's your, what are you trying to do with it? Right now, we're just in the U.S. and certain APO, DPO addresses. But the goal is at some point to expand to an international market because we still receive a lot of inbound requests from the U.K., from South America, Australia, basically everywhere. And so trying to address that need while also still learning about how to optimize the company where we're at right now, it's a weird balancing act. So I'm not putting that on my agenda for another year or two. Okay. How, how do you decide what goes in each STEM box? Is that a method you use or how does that work out? Oh, I love this question. So I would say there's a few ways that a STEM box gets designed. The first way is usually I pick from an experiment that I did growing that really impacted me. So something that has a tangible result. And then the other way I pick is <laughs> the opposite. It's something I didn't get to do that I thought would have really impacted my ability to choose what I wanted to do in science. And of course, if we have partners, we love to take advice from them and insight and just kind of talk to people and communicate cool ideas. And so we have a couple of, I have a couple of idea boards that I use to pull ideas from and build box schemes around that. And so there's so much science out there. People get worried. They're, they ask, how, how are you going to do a new box every month? Well, we're two years in and <laughs> we've done a box every month and it's always different. So when the girls get your box, do they send the results they find back to you or how does that work? How do you know, how do you know, what, uh, you know, somebody gets a box actually doing something with it. Is there a feedback mechanism you use for that? Yeah, we take a couple of methods of feedback. Number one is we look mainly for our hashtag in different locations. So on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we do see girls using the product and being quite successful in their experiments. And so we see girls being really successful in their experiments on those sites. And then the other way we do it is that we try to email our parents after the boxes go out, like a week or two after they go out. And we try to get feedback in a poll. And a lot of the polls are very helpful. They'll ask for future boxes that they want to see or they'll say if something was too difficult for their child because we are kind of a large age range. And... That's how we primarily gauge how the boxes were successful. And then also recently, this is a new addition. Sunbox has opened up a parent-only channel on Facebook. So we have our regular Facebook page for anybody in the world to come look at us. 
But then we have a second page where it's restricted access just to people who are subscribing so they can engage with each other and talk to each other about what's going on with their subscription. So that I love because we get parents who can talk about you know what's going on in their box that their daughter struggled with or loved particularly. And we can also answer questions for them there or the parents answer each other's questions, cutting down our support support time, which is pretty nice. And also it just develops a deeper relationship with our customer base. And we want them to know that we're here and listening and doing everything we can to make a good product for their feminist. Kina, are you finding that there are certain locations that are more willing to purchase your product, like a certain state or a certain city or location? Or is it pretty even across yeah. the United States? So we are in every state, but the degree of which is different. So the states we see the most sales in right now are California, Texas, New York, and Washington. And I'm sure that you could guess, but that probably has more to do with demographic size, like population size, than anything else. Um, there's just more people there to buy it. So I think we're still young enough that we're identifying those trends, but we have some data to be able to say that those are where we are seeing the most purchases. Kina, so Stimbox is focused to girls age of 7 to 13. Why those specific ages, 7 or 13? We chose 7 to 13, or 7 to 12 mostly, but we chose that age group because that's when girls at 7 start to really choose their passions in life. That's when they start to realize certain gender norms and start adhering to them a little bit more strictly to fit into the social programs that are going on at their schools. And we wanted to make sure that we gave them a wide enough range of ages so that a box could be appealing to a seven-year-old and also to a 12-year-old, but in different ways. So I would say the main way a seven to eight-year-old would engage with the box is they're very, they just have the basic motor skills to finish these experiments and their parents will probably need to help them. And then from eight to, or nine to 10, what we said is more independent. So we hope those girls can finish on their own, but asking parents for help when it's necessary. And then lastly, we have the 11 to 12. And 11 to 12 year olds can definitely finish these experiments on their own. There's a lot of autonomy. But we ask them to take it to the next level. So they need to go and do different variables after they finish the first experiment run through. Or they can look up different resources or career tracks through our website after they're done. That's how we kind of split up the age ranges. But we also, we really just want to make sure we're inspiring girls up and we're never talking down to them. So girls always want to do what their older sister or their older friends are doing. And so that's what Stumbox is. It's like the big sister and what you want to do. So that's how we kind of approach it with the ages. I'm probably misquoting this, but I remember hearing somewhere that something like 90% of elementary age school girls are interested in STEM engineering. By the time they get to high school, that goes from 90% all the way down to less than 10%. Have you heard that stat before or anything like that? I haven't heard that particular one. I pull a lot of my resources from the National Girls Collaborative Project. But yeah, there's data like that that really demonstrates that girls really drop off the spectrum for interest in STEM at those ages. Do you think that's because of societal pressures that society puts on them as, as young ladies? So that's a really complicated question that I think has a bunch of answers and people working on it. So I think there's a few things. I think, number one, environment is a really big factor. So if you're growing up in an environment where women in science aren't portrayed as the cool thing to do, it's not going to be very appealing. If you don't see female role models around you, you don't see women succeeding, 
in a field that you want to go into, you're not going to want to go into that field. And if you grow up in a household or community where girls just don't do science and they're instead pushed into more gender stereotyped projects, you're going to go do that. I think there's also a lot of you know, social attitudes that change how girls approach STEM. So a great example of this is when boys go into exams or they come out of exams and they say, oh, how'd you do? And the boys are like, oh, I did pretty good. I crushed it. And a girl who studied so hard, and I've encountered this in my own education, they'll come out and they'll be like, I don't know. I think I could have done this better and that better and that better. And as girls, we're not taught to be super braggadocious we're just told to be really humble and like conservative and in science and in research and in classes it's really hard to have your voice heard if that's the kind of you know style you've been taught in terms of interacting with other people so I think the social implications apply a lot and there's a really interesting study that happened and I think it was the Middle East somewhere um, I don't want to mess up the country but basically what happened was is they had teachers give tests to kids and they saw the names on the test, math test. And when the kids turned them in, the boys always scored higher when the names were displayed. But after they removed names and they switched to numbering systems for grading tests, girls scored just as well, if not better, than the boys on those tests. I need to go find that and send the link to you because it's a really interesting study. So even teachers will have an implicit bias against girls. And they may not mean to, they may not genuinely believe this, but it's just, it's an implicit bias. Most people have them and they just need to be addressed and recognized and you need to make sure you're adjusting course appropriately. So yeah, it's a super complicated question. At the young age, that's what you see a lot of. And as you get older, they start to experience a lot of isolation. They look around their classes and engineering and physics and they're like one of two girls in a class of 30. And then they go out to get their career started and they'll notice again that women are in fewer numbers, especially in leadership roles. So biology is a great example. Biology, there's a ton of women in the field. But when you try to look at the next step further and say how many of these women are running their own labs or PIs or first authors, you see those numbers fall dramatically. So it's really interesting. You go on to your career and you come over one hurdle to just find another roadblock. And most women do their best to block, like push through them. But you can't expect somebody to go through every obstacle in their life in the field and feel welcome there. I think there's a lot of issues. (laughs) Yes. It's very complicated. Like you said, Kina, next talk about a time you were successful in the past, what you learned from the success and what our listeners should learn from the success you had in the past. Honestly, um, this is kind of broad, but every day that my company is, you know, up and running and healthy and getting girl science, Just the fact that we've existed for two years is a huge success to me. I know a lot of startups go under and it's very common to see them fail. And luckily, Stumbox is not one of those companies. So I would say that the company as a whole is the biggest success. But for the sake of being more granular, I guess I would say it was starting a partnership with Microsoft. We've been lucky in the past that things have fallen into our lap. Clorox approached us, Melinda Gates. We didn't ask them to post that. They did it on their own. And what happened with Microsoft is we really wanted to work with them because we were a Seattle company. We live in Des Moines, Iowa now. But at the time, we were in Seattle. And so the question was, how come we're not working with Microsoft? And so one of my employees at the time reached out to a couple of people. And she was really a go-getter. And she found somebody on LinkedIn, got in touch with them, and basically initiated a relationship with Microsoft. 
And so that led to something really cool where I was able to go speak at their Microsoft Inspire event in Washington, D.C. this year. And we worked with them on podcasts and just getting out the word and co-branding. So that's a really interesting relationship to me because it's just starting and I'm really excited to see where it goes. But that was something we really had to work for. So I'd say that's one of my my favorite success stories. And yeah. You know, now talk about a talent you failed in the past, what you learned from this and what our listeners can learn from this. So most recently, actually, this is a very recent lesson. So I haven't mentioned this yet really on the show, but back in Seattle or back in July, yeah, sorry, (laughs) back in July, Stembox relocated. We were living in Seattle and doing business there and a couple of life changes came up and it was time to move the company elsewhere. So we picked Des Moines and Des Moines has been fantastic to us so far and it's been the best decision. But what I messed up is I know, I think I severely underestimated the time, money and energy that goes into moving your company. So I did everything I could that I thought I could think of. So I was like putting together my spreadsheets and making sure my deadlines were hit and putting money where it needed to go. And then we got here. And after all this setup and like getting ready, and I even like told our subscribers at one point, we're going to just shift all shipments back one month just to make sure that we can, you know, accurately fulfill everybody's orders and nothing gets lost in the shuffle just to hit a quick reset on everything. So everybody's cool with that. But what I messed up was when we started with our new fulfillment center, I'm used to working with centers that can turn around the box in a week because they're a little bit smaller and we're a bigger customer. And then what happened was when we moved here, I found an amazing fulfillment center that I love. And they're actually up the road from me right now. The difference is they're so, they're really big and they have a bunch of other customers and I wasn't ready to not be somebody's priority and I didn't communicate this well. So it ended up taking a couple weeks longer than I'd hoped to get our box out. And it was one of the times we had to send it out a little bit later and it was dealing with a lot of customer support and trying to communicate the situation to our customers. But I dropped the ball big time there. Like that was a huge oversight. And so the lesson I've learned from it though is just put things in writing in like an SOP or something because we have an SOP for all of our fulfillment procedures and everybody else I've ever worked with, I've given it to, but in moving and dealing with all of the chaos that comes with it, I just, totally didn't give it to them and I totally forgot and so they were working blindly without any like great communication for me and luckily things are back on track and they have it and we talk regularly like every week but it was an interesting experience to go through I've never actually been like that behind on something so yeah that was it yeah you're right moving is not a pleasant experience it takes a lot of hard work so tell us about someone who's Mm -hmm. helped you in the past and how this person has helped you in the past so something that immediately comes there are a couple people but who immediately comes to mind. So Jamie Cordero is another female founder. She's back in Seattle and she's the founder of, um, and the CEO of Espionage Cosmetics, which is a nerdy beauty company. They make all of these amazing makeup and nail wraps that are themed in like the nerdiest things. And so of course, science falls into that spectrum and they have amazing science products. And I met Jamie when I was just starting my company and She, I think, is what I would call a sponsor when I was starting. Somebody who really just takes you and like tries to help you and build you up and make you grow. And it's a little bit different than different than a mentor, but I would say she's a sponsor. And 
anyways, she was so amazing to me when we started. She would like ask me to come down to their shop in Tacoma when they had Halloween parties and just like set up a table and try to get her customers interested in Stembox which is a huge ask if somebody who has their own brand is to put risk into offering another brand and putting your stamp of approval on it if you don't know them very well. That and she was so generous with like, you know, working with us on certain kits. So if we did a blood box one year, she has these nail wraps that are like blood splatters. And so we actually worked with her to get a good deal going and we bought those from her and we put them in the box. But she has just been like, the biggest cheerleader, like, so supportive, mentions my name, whatever she can kind of thing. And like, you know, we still keep in touch and we talk and it's like, it just reminds me of talking to somebody else who's like gone through the exact same thing I have because we both started our companies with like nothing. We didn't start our companies because our dads gave us a loan or because we took out money from the bank or because we had a huge savings. It was just something we both like built up gradually over time. So she definitely understands that. And whenever we're in trouble, it's just something that I can talk to her about. Tell us something about yourself that most people don't know. Like maybe like your close friends, close family knows this, but most people don't know this about you. So a lot of people do know that I have a cute little chihuahua that is so adorable. She's four pounds. But I think a lot of people, oh yeah, this is a great one. Okay. So I grew up in Las Vegas and I, you know, K through 12, everything in my life happened there. But when I was in third grade, I found out about plans for Yucca Mountain and to put nuclear waste storage there. And our teacher had us write letters to the president to say, please don't put the Yucca Mountain waste up there. And I was so distraught that I could not just be done with just writing a letter. And so, like, maybe I can, like, get people to sign something. And somebody was like, that's called a petition. And I said, oh, okay, great. So I actually started a petition in fourth grade because this was, like, a year-long plus project. And I would take it to all of my sister's soccer games. I would take it to any place outside my house. I'd go to school, and my principal let me set up a table and recess have like little kids sign my petition oh my god so (laughs) at the end of like at some point my mom was so embarrassed I mean she was just like she's obsessed with this petition so she put it in the closet but then later she was like you know actually it's pretty cool so she brought it back out and she let me keep going and eventually like it landed a new story which was kind of fun and at my fifth grade award ceremony I was like this is kind of embarrassing the Clark County, which is like just the governing area we lived in, they gave me a proclamation thanking me for my um, petition. I collected over like, I think it's like 2,000 signatures, which is really also very embarrassing. I wore a dress that looked like Liza Minnelli's because I had so many sequins on it and flags. And I gave a speech. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. But yeah, I did that. And I don't think anybody, um, not a lot of people know that. That that is a great story right there. That's really great. I love that story. Kina, do you have any books you're reading right now or that you can recommend to our listeners? Yes. My friend Ashwin, when I was starting my company, he's just like one of those startup people who just seems to know everything, which is great. He recommended this book called Traction, How Any Startup Can Achieve Explosive Customer Growth. And it's by Gabriel Weinberg and Justin Maris. And I bought it on Amazon and I love it because it's 
so bullet pointed and just like pretty straight through straightforward about the different channels of traction a company can gain. So it's very comprehensive with anything from, you know, social media, word of mouth, press, print, what have you, and how or how startups can really achieve traction through those channels. So I've relied on it and I've used it to kind of, you know, expand my realm of thinking when it comes to our marketing and understand better where we could be, where we're best fit and how to test those areas and even how to get them started. So that would be my book recommendation. Kina, understand you have something for our listeners today. So we have a promo code that we'd be super happy to offer any of your listeners with 20% off a Dumbbox subscription. Um, the code is STEMLOVE, one word, S-T-E-M-L-O-V-E. Dumbbox is a really great holiday gift, and this is actually when we see most of our sales happen because people give them as gifts to their kids. And if you were to order it before the 16th, that box would, ar- would ship out on the 25th of November because that's our cycle. So yeah. Kina, can you provide some of your social media platforms for both yourself and Stembox so our listeners can reach out to you? Yeah, we're everywhere. So first of all, the website is mystembox.com and we are on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash mystembox. On Instagram, at mystembox. And on Twitter, at stembox, surprisingly enough. And we're also on Pinterest, which is really fun. And that's mystembox. And then, sorry, one more. We're on YouTube because we film a lot of tutorial videos to teach kids how to use the boxes. And that one is Inbox. So to our listeners, we'll have all these links in our show notes for you to use. Kina, we'll come to the end of our talk. Can you provide any uh, last minute advice or wisdom to our listeners? Or anything else you would like to talk about? Honestly, I would just say, like, don't just talk to talk about something you're passionate about. Start trying it out and like trying actual actions because you can get a lot farther than you think. When I started my company, I thought my only skill set, which I was still developing, was in research in a lab. And by getting out of my comfort zone and doing this business, I have learned so much more than I thought I was ever capable of. And my self-confidence has grown tremendously. Not always successful, like you heard. But the times that you do come through for yourself and you learn from your mistakes, you feel amazing and you realize that you're so much more than just one person. So I would just recommend people really just try it. Kina, thank you very much for that. Thank you for being on the podcast today. You provided some great vibe advice for us. And it's, it's really fun to learn about your journey with Stembox. To our listeners, remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Cadmus HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit CadmusHR.com or connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cadmus HR or Jason Cadmus HR on Snapchat. Thanks again, and be great every day.